I apply for a job. I, I set up my what online through LinkedIn with, oh, I don't have an address. Oh, wait a minute. I have nowhere to use the internet. Oh, wait a minute. I have nowhere to use a computer. Um, I have my resume. Oh, I can't keep it clean because I have nowhere to keep it at all. And, oh, I have an interview, but I don't have any clothes to wear to the interview. Oh, I finally got some clothes to wear to the interview, but they're not clean. And oh, I don't have anywhere to, to iron them or to press them. My clothes are clean, but now I'm not clean on this day when we have the two things together and they lined up. And, and I fill out the application and the employer goes, well, you know, you don't have an address or, or, or you know, where can we send? We just send you something by mail. There's nowhere to send it to. And or and or in other cases where you get a job and they find out that you're that you're homeless and they fire you because you're homeless. That's kind of how that one goes. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. Before I introduce my guest, I want to say that I have spent the last several months looking for someone who could talk about the homelessness crisis in a way that most people, or at least I, had not heard before. Just some quick numbers. Data from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development shows that last year, more than half a million Americans experienced homelessness at some point. More than half of all homeless people in the country are in California, a state that had the biggest increase of all states in homelessness during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Los Angeles Homelessness Service Authority, or LASA, reported more than 66,000 people living without homes in L.A. County in 2020, and that's a 16% increase from the previous year. Now, there's endless finger-pointing about why the situation has become so catastrophic and no end of propositions about how to address it. But coherent plans or even meaningful diagnoses seem hard to come by. When I became aware of Sean Pleasance, an advocate for the homeless in Los Angeles, I knew he was the person I wanted to talk with. Sean himself was homeless for a decade. He lived for most of that time in an encampment in the Koreatown neighborhood, where he and his husband of now 18 years dealt with medical problems, addiction issues, street violence, and tried several times to find jobs and housing, only to hit any number of dead ends. Sean also happens to be a Yale graduate who once worked on Wall Street and later owned his own business. The stories of how he became homeless and then finally got out of homelessness, and that involved a chance CNN story and a reconnection with an old classmate, are remarkable. But even more remarkable is his perspective on the bigger crisis. Sean spoke with me not just about the day-to-day -day life of someone living on the street, but also what city and state officials are getting wrong when they talk about how to fix the problem. He also talked about common misperceptions about the homeless. For instance, the idea that many people on the street are choosing to be there. Sean Pleasance, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. You graduated from Yale with a degree in economics. You had a business. Uh, I think you worked on Wall Street for a little while. Um, and through a combination of circumstances, you ended up homeless for 10 years, I think. Um, you've been off the street for a little over a year now and are working as an advocate for the homeless in Los Angeles. I do want to hear you tell your story, but I was also struck by something I heard you say in a recent forum discussion, which is that the story of how you became homeless doesn't really matter that much. 
Um, so uh, to that end, I want to start by just, let's just get into it. I want you to address a perception that a lot of people have, which is that the people who are homeless on the street are there because they have refused help somehow. They've refused shelter. And now, obviously, the majority of homeless people are not actually on the street per se. They're in shelters and temporary housing, that sort of thing. But focusing on the most visible population for now, um, how many of them, if offered a safe place to sleep tonight, would choose to sleep outdoors? Oh. Well, that's, that is a very tough question. Um, uh, how we receive help or how we uh, receive assistance often has a lot to do with how it's offered. Um, in my experience, unfortunately, we haven't gotten very good at how we offer um, help to people. Um, the city typically comes and presents the person with an ultimatum, not an offer of help. Either you go to the shelter or we will throw your things away and arrest you for, for uh, one of the various city ordinances for being on a public place. That's usually what's presented to a homeless person. Um, I don't know about you, but for myself, when presented with that, I just want to rebel. And of course, I'm going to, re I'm going to resist whatever it is you're offering. You could be giving me money. I don't want it. You just threatened me. And is this because of, I mean, obviously this is because of ordinances within municipalities. So like in, in Los Angeles, for example, what would be the laws that a homeless person would be breaking technically? Well, right now there, there are you know, laws against when you can or cannot have a tent up or down. Um, tents must be down from six in the morning to, to nine at night. Um, I, I'm disabled. I have vision issues. I have one good eye and the other eye is, I definitely would not call it good. It's, it's, it's fair to Midland at best. And um, putting up a tent in, in the darkness at night is really quite dangerous. It's really quite difficult and it's unnecessary. Ordinances like these um, really are aimed at making things better for the house, not for the unhoused. Um, there are also ordinances that are in the works uh, concerning whether or not and where you can sleep, where you can sit, where you can lie down. Um, and all of these, you know, create an environment where there's basically nowhere for someone who's unhoused to be legally. And that therein lies the criminalization of homelessness. Um, mm -hmm. After you've been arrested once or twice for having a tent up or for being on a sidewalk, um, then they will then uh, create warrants. Warrants for your arrest because you haven't appeared in court to to handle these things, and you haven't appeared in court because you don't have the money to deal with them to begin with. Um, so it creates this endless cycle. Um, but but in my opinion, the the biggest problem is that we are often looking at uh, solutions for the house and not really for the for the homeless. Um, everything is is about out of sight, out of mind. How do we get them off the street? How do we clear Venice Beach? Uh, you know, every single one of those has to do with the people who have homes, not with people who are unhoused. If if somebody was going to go along with this order to get off the street, I mean, I'm assuming if they, they say we're going to you're going to go to a shelter or we're going to throw your stuff out or you're, you're going to go to some kind of interim housing. OK, so say you or some any given homeless person was to say, OK, I'll, I'll go with you. Um, 
tell me, tell me where to go. How are you going to help me? What would happen? Like with their stuff, can you take your stuff? Like what are the steps to sleeping indoors that night? Well, I love the question because it's different depending on every single spa you're in, every service provider area. It's different based on every, uh, you know, council district you're in. And it's different based on every block or every, uh, every, nearly every track that you're in because it depends on the people involved who are offering the services at that given time and moment. And therein lies another problem. There's no consistency in, in, in the methodology in which things are done or in the services which are offered or not offered. Um, so it would just depend on, on who happened upon me and from what agency and what time of the week and how they're feeling. Tell us where you were living for most of these 10 years. Tell us what was it like? Who was there? What kinds of interactions did you have with outreach workers and law enforcement? All of that. Well, I, I was, uh, for, the, for the majority of the time, I stayed at, uh, in Koreatown at uh, 7th and Hobart. Um, myself and my husband tended to not move around much. Uh, we were in that same corner. Uh, probably for over six years of our ten years on the street, yeah, we we pretty much stayed in the same the same area for for the majority of the time there, um, and because of that, um, we may have had a different experience. Um, we managed to make very strong uh, bonds or connections with people who were in the neighborhood. Um, we you know became part of the daily goings ons. We you know we we cleaned the sidewalks. We kept things you know neat and tidy. We we looked out for the people who were housed um, by making sure they didn't have any trouble with people who were unhoused and kind of acted as mediators on our own behalf um, because we knew it was in our interest to do so. Um, we, you know, often help help people uh, with simple things, um, carrying carrying groceries or items if they needed them, helping people cross the street if they're around and, and, and we noticed it. Um, we, tr- we tried to to do our best to be part of the neighborhood rather than a problem of the neighborhood. Hmm. So um, were you like kind of running interference between the housed people and some of the homeless people who were less oh, functional than you? Yeah, that's what it absolutely. sounds like. Absolutely. Because there seemed to be on both sides a lack of understanding or or compassion for, for each other's plight. And oftentimes it was just merely a communication issue. Um, where you know the two sides d- just didn't know how to talk to one another. Um, when when people have so many frustrations built up over so so much time and no one to talk to them about, when they run into the folks who are actually part of that perceived problem, they unload, they unleash all of that anger, all of that that ill will and and, and malcontent upon those unsuspecting people. And it's unfortunate because it's it's merely a fact that comes about because there has been no communication between the two sides. And that was something that I, I saw clearly that there's, there, there needs to be a dialogue. There needs to be a narrative, a conversation. Um, these aren't strangers on the street. There's somebody's brothers and somebody's sisters and mothers and fathers and daughters and grandchildren. Um, they're connected to somebody. And until we look at it that way, it's always been a problem. And we seem to always view it through the lens of us and them, those people on the street. And, you know, and, and that creates a, a very uh, big barrier. Well, and to this point, these are people's mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. These, you know, homeless people, 
They have families somewhere. And that's another thing I think that comes up when people say, well, they're choosing to be on the street. Um, they, they have families in places. They're probably not in communication with their families. Somehow that this, they have ended up there because they have elected to somehow. So, you know, to, to that point, you know, I've read in some places that, that in LA, 30% of the people on the street, or at least people who, who have interacted with um, outreach workers, have mental health issues or substance abuse issues or both. And frankly, I was surprised the number was that low. I, I mean, what, again, like, what are we talking about? How, what are people getting wrong when they're saying, like, these people are choosing to be there, they could have a bed in a shelter, they could have a bed well, at their cousin's house if they chose? Well, people aren't looking at it from a trauma-informed point of view. Um, I don't know about you, but I do know because I've been there, being on the street is quite a traumatic experience. Having lost your entire world, your, your entire foundation, your way, the way that you think things work, and suddenly you've been thrust into this uh, doggy dog uh, survival uh, situation, it really does change a person's outlook. It changes your your well-being it changes your self-esteem it changes everything about you um and no one knows how they would react until they're in that situation for me the last thing i want to do was bring further shame further embarrassment um onto my family my friends and others so um that's one reason why uh people often do not go to family or others is because there's so much shame associated with it and no one addresses that uh, where are the mental health workers to help people reconnect, to help them heal those wounds? Um, it's it's in addition to your uh, to you finding yourself completely isolated, all alone on the street with with no one to help you because somehow people feel as if they're going to catch homelessness, like it's a contagion. And so uh, those that you do reach out for help from your network prior to this aren't there for you. They just aren't. Um, you know, I had hundreds of friends. And it boiled down to a handful that would even take a phone call once we became homeless. And um, I understand, it's, it, you know, it's, it's very unfortunate. I, I, I'm not saying I condone it, but I understand their fear because if it could happen to me, it could happen to them. And we're, we, we're so good at um, feeling safe by just keeping things away from us, um, keeping it out of sight and out of mind. Yeah. Sean, can you describe what you're home on the street was like would you call it an encampment like can you just kind of give us a, a visual were you like under well, an overpass that kind of thing what 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 was what was your environment like well that changed over time um when i first when we first became homeless um it was our car uh, we lived in our car and we would park near places that we felt safe or secure we parked near goodwill we parked near certain stores or we had a certain a friend in Koreatown who used to always let us come over and shower. We'd park near his house. Um, and, and that was pretty much our involvement with it. And we kept to ourselves. However, after losing the car, um, then we lived on the street, literally. And at first, we just lived in tarps um, and structures made out of cardboard or, or wood and kind of still kind of kept our distance because um, living in an encampment could be a good or a bad thing. And um, there, there are advantages and disadvantages. Um, having that sense of community can help you, 
But um, at the same time, it can hurt you. There can be those around you who you don't like or you don't want there. You can't tell them to leave or move because none of us own the street. So suddenly you're stuck or saddled with the problem or you must move yourself. Um, you have to worry about the safety of the of of your person every every night. You have to worry about you know whether or not people are going to steal from from you. You have to worry about all types of things. Uh, you know, um, you 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 have to take the good and the bad that come with community if you're going to live with one. And that's what we ended up living. I guess by by the, the last few years, people had moved around us and we're in our area. We can't make them move. And we were kind of wed to the area due to the, the bonds and ties we'd made with the, with the fellow neighbors. Um, so then there was a small encampment. And um, we found it best that we try to, uh, I guess, uh, be ambassadors of some sort within that community because we couldn't make that community go away. It was going to be around us. And what was your day like? Like when you woke up, what would be the first thing that you would do? Um, well, most days you'd awake to the sound of um, garbage trucks coming through the city and you would jump up because you've been so traumatized because typically when the garbage trucks come through, um, they're, they're accompanied by um, LASA, they're accompanied by the police department, and they're usually going to be taking your items or trying to check you for warrants or write you tickets that will get you warrants and, and making those quote unquote offers of, of housing at the same time. Um, so that would be the first, the first round when you wake up. Um, after that, you've got to then check and make sure everything that you went to bed with last night is still there and see what, basically see what, what you're missing, uh, from, from your night's sleep, because when you sleep, you lose. Um, you have to then figure out, okay, um, am I going to be able to stay here during the day? Have the signs changed during the night? Because that's usually when they do it. The city will come through and now suddenly where you're at is you can't stay there or, or, or it's, uh, you know, a construction zone or, you know, they'll, anything like they'll can put up signs. Night. They'll put up signs, literally like street signs or what kinds of signs? Yes. In the yes. The they'll, literally, they'll literally put up street signs saying that, you know, this area is now, uh, you know, you can't be there because there's going to be construction from this hour to this hour. The gas company is coming through. Something else is coming through. So every day you had to secure and make sure that you could stay where you were staying last night as well. Um, you have to worry about finding somewhere to eat, um, uh, you know, food, you know, food resources. Uh, you, you, of course, you have to use the facilities. So um, uh, most of the businesses aren't too keen on having homeless people use their facilities. So you had to have figured out places to go, such as libraries or maybe the supermarket or maybe McDonald's bathroom where you can clean up or freshen up and actually use the facilities. Um, and that wasn't always the case. Sometimes that might be half the day trying to find a place just to use the bathroom. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's quite frustrating and, and difficult. And it's quite a challenge sometimes. Um, and this goes on. Then, then you might be able to get to recycling and other things to earn a little bit of money to uh, be able to have something to buy food and other things. Um, so it's it's often a quite busy day. It's, it's, it's packed full. <laughs> um, and, of course, if. You know, given the way the current, if you're following the ordinances, you're supposed to have taken your tent down and everything down. But then if you do that, you can't really go look for anything or do anything to try to better yourself because everything you have will get taken while you're gone. Because if you're not there at a tent, the city considers it to be abandoned. Um, and, and so um, they kind of get you in a setup where you're stuck. You're stuck by your stuff because if you step away for 
for any amount of time, it's all taken away because it's been abandoned. So you're carrying your stuff on your back, essentially. If you can, yes. Yeah. So you were with your your partner, your husband, for all of this time. Um, yeah. How was it that that the two of you wound up in this situation? Were you together before you were homeless, or did you meet on the street? How how did that evolve? No, we we before we've been together for eighteen years now, um, and um, I was always the the provider, and he was the homemaker. Um, so um, you know, we we stayed together through this. He's been my support. Um, he's always been, you know, there for me. I have I have a lot of medical issues. He's my caretaker for all of those. And um, you know, it's it's uh an odd riches to rags story, if you if you <laughs> if you will. Mm-hmm. So I I mean, I I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to talk at least a little bit about how you wound up here. We don't need to make it huge meal of it, but it's certainly an unusual trajectory. You, you were a businessman, you're highly educated. Um, I think you're, are you from Texas originally? Is that yes, what I, was from I San, read? Yes, originally from yeah. San Antonio. Um, yes, I, I, you know, I, I grew up a, a pretty normal life. Um, you know, I was a nerdy kid. I, I was valedictorian in my high school. I graduated from Yale University with a degree in economics. I worked on Wall Street. Um, I owned my own business in Los Angeles. Um, a, a confluence of things happened at same about the same time. I had some issues with my business partners. Or my business got frozen. And uh, at the same time, I got news from my mom that she had colon cancer and wouldn't be long for this world. And maybe I'm a little different, but um, I had an extremely close relationship with my mother. Um, I was born a sickly child. I had club feet when I was born. I was, I had 2,400 vision in both eyes. I had all, you name it, all types of medical issues. And my mom was always there for me. Um, I missed, you know, at, at least most weeks of school, I missed at least a day. And my mom would always be there with me, holding my hand, making sure that I felt okay. It wasn't the pain medications the doctors were giving me that made me feel better. It was my mom holding my hand and reading where the wild things were. <laughs> and um, that made all the difference. So I had a really close relationship and, and, and it really, it, it threw me for a loop. My, my world fell apart and um, I had no desire or, or no motivation to do anything. You know, it's the thought of losing my mother. And at the same time, my business uh, had folded. Um, so it, it just created the perfect storm. And suddenly there we were in our car um, in the blink of an eye. And what and, was your family's, sorry to interrupt you, just what was your family's socioeconomic status growing up? Um, we were, um, I guess you'd say just barely making by. My father was a retired Air Force. Um, my mom worked as a, most of her life as a cook. And then uh, later, uh, she, she, she was an amazing woman. She, she got her GED at 35 and uh, be, became a, an aide in a, in a reading lab at a school, alternative school for for uh, for uh, high school students, um, my father, um, after he retired, he went back and got an associate's degree and and uh, became a, an auto mechanics instructor since he had been a flight mechanic. Um, and uh, they did the best they could. There were four children, and uh, it was it was tough, but we made it. How did you end up at Yale? Obviously, you were an excellent student, but was somebody saying to you, "Hey"? 
you can you can get to this place it's it's possible um what was the kind of channel to to getting um, there i had actually never even thought about it um i was part of a program called upward bound and uh, there was a woman there miss edwards and she was always um pushing us to strive for more to to go higher and 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 it literally the the applications were due december 31st of our senior year in high school and i i went home over christmas break with a handful of applications because i hadn't even thought about it and in those uh seven or eight days i filled out uh, a you know about 10 different applications for for yale for harvard for princeton for upenn for stanford you know university of texas uh you know just a, a a huge group of them all at once and uh to my surprise i got into all of them um, wow all of them <laughs> all of them Wow, and I ch- I chose Yale. I I had seventeen different scholarships that I left behind because I left Texas. You know, if I would have stayed in Texas, I would have lived like a king. <laughs> mm. um, however, you know, the needs blind admissions that the Ivy Leagues had worked out for me. Um, we were able to afford the combination of of work study and Pell grants and and so forth, uh, so that I could uh, attend school there. And it was it was it was a great thing, but uh, it was not something I thought about or planned for all my life. It just kind of happened at the last minute, thanks to uh, someone uh, pushing me in the right direction. And what was it like when you got there? It must have been culture shock, to say the least. Um, yes, it was. Um, I was filled with so many different emotions. I was overwhelmed with, with joy and, and accomplishment. And at the same time, I was filled with doubt. Um, there were people there who'd been to private schools their entire lives. Um, there were people there, you know, uh, they they didn't grow up with a with a silver spoon in their mouth. They had the whole silver set. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. It was, you know, and I don't know if I can say this on your podcast. I'm going to say it anyway, and you can edit it. Anything. But, it's the name of the but, podcast is the unspeakable. You can say okay, then absolutely we will anything. Okay, um, <laughs> Something to characterize. My very first day when I arrived at the, you know, we flew in and and then drove down to New Haven. When I got to New Haven proper and was let off by by the cab, um, a van drove by and this guy, the van slowed down and the guy yelled out the window at me. And he, and, and he said, he said, what do you think you're doing, you fucking nigger? I grew up my entire life in the South and had never been called that word until I was standing there in front of Phelps gate in front of the gates of Yale university. I'm called that word for the very first time. I laughed. <laughs> That's all I could do. All I could do was laugh. Um, you know, it, it, it was so absurd. I'd made it so far from, you know, where that word was trying to put me to that moment. What year was this? Just uh, curious. This is 1985. So, and was this a student or this was some random person driving by? I believe some random person driving by. It it, it blew my mind because in all the years that I grew up in the South, I had never once been called that. (laughs) And then I go to the North and I'm standing there, you know, at the pinnacle of of, of my achievement in front of Yale University and someone yells that out of a van right at me. And then he was pissed when I started laughing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that is probably the best reaction. I did quite well at Yale. Yeah, I, I made tons of friends. Um, I'm I'm a very 
likable person. I, 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 at least from my point of view, um, I make friends easy. Um, I, you know, uh, and people tend to, to like me. So I had, I had a lot of friends. I was involved in a lot of different activities. Um, so I, you know, and, and a lot of these friends after hearing the story have all come to my rescue and have reached out and, it, and it's been amazing. It feels so good that, um, I've had so many people cheering for me in, in, in my corner. Do you think that part of the reason that you slid into this situation was that your network of friends, it's almost like they probably couldn't even get their mind around something like this. Like, do you think that they were not really able to perceive the extent to which you were in trouble because it was like unfathomable to them somehow? Well, I, I think, I think you're, you're quite right in that regard. I actually had one of my closest friends tell me that exact same thing that he said, you know, looking back on it, um, the signs were there when you told me that, you know, you were having a hard time with your mom's passing and, and, and that your company was, was in difficulty. And he said, I just assumed that you would be all right. And then 10 years passed and I see you on CNN and I realized, oh my God, I made a terrible mistake. I didn't reach out and I, it crossed my mind, but I didn't do it. And, and, you know, it, it, it is what it is. Um, it's, we often have so much going on in our own lives that it's 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 very difficult, and we and we wish the best on those around us that they will make it through whatever troubles they may have. We hear them, but we don't necessarily do something because we're so busy trying to take care of the fires and all the problems in our own circle. Yeah. So when you were living in this, I mean, what what would you like us to call it? Is it an encampment? What's the what's the most respectful well, way to refer well, to community. I'll, like I'll, let, I'll let you decide. Given that in this one block there were only four tents, <laughs> I don't know if you want to call that a cabinet okay. or it's not. A little little enclave. Okay. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so you were. What was what would be going through your mind? I mean, the people that you were there with were most of them mentally well, ill. Were they like walking around talking to themselves? Like, what was the scene? Absolutely not. No, most people were were um, were fairly were, were as functional as 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 I was. Uh, because every day, remind remember uh, those things I said that need to be attended to every day were attended to by all these people. That takes quite a bit of effort um, to be out there in you know in the elements and to do all those things on a daily basis and stay alive. Um, so you got to give people on the street a little more credit than than we do. And you also have to remember. What stands out to anyone or to all of us is always the most memorable. So, of course, we're going to remember the person who's walking around talking to themselves or the person sweeping the middle of the street in, in between the cars. We're, we're not going to remember those who are, who are out collecting cans or out recycling or, or some people day labor during the day at, at, you know, at Home Depot and other places. You don't see them. And they're part of the homeless, too. Um, you don't see the people in their cars, do you? Um, so, so what we see is just, uh, you know, the tip of the iceberg and, and, and the most outrageous and the most memorable. And so, so when people often talk to me about that, I don't take offense to it, but, but yeah, I, I, I remember those, uh, or in my mind, those folks who are walking around talking to them, they stand out to me too, <laughs> just as much as they do to you. <laughs> um, and they're, they're just as odd. And, but it speaks to another problem that, that is we, we're not addressing mental health issues we don't address you know addiction issues um 
at the beginning of our discussion, I talked about just the trauma of being on the street. Well, uh, you know, most people have coping mechanisms. You've got a network of friends. You have activities you can do. Um, you might have a psychiatrist you can talk to or a psychologist. You might have, you know, medication, you know, uh, for take for depression or anxiety. Um, all someone on the street has is are, are street street drugs. That's pretty much it. Um, that 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 is the only thing we have to use as a coping mechanism. We we have far fewer tools to use as coping mechanisms than someone else, let alone a mental health professional, which is really what you know. Just being on the street, even if you're on the street and 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 everything else was good and perfect and fine, you'd still be so much trauma that anyone would need you know some sort of mental health uh, professional to to help get them through it. And these people have nothing, not a single thing. What would have helped you? Okay, so say on any given day, if some outreach kind of person, social worker, I don't know what we imagine this mythical person to be, came to you and said, okay, what, what, what do I need? What do you need to get off the street tonight? What, what can I give you or offer you that would be genuinely useful? How would you answer? Um, I, would, I would answer by saying, well, the First of all, I would thank them for asking me what I needed rather than trying to tell me what I what they have. Um, we're often approached by people just telling us what they have, and they rarely ask us what, what, what we need. I was fortunate in that after 10 years, that happened. Someone asked me what I needed, and that's, and that's what worked. But um, that's the starting point. Um, each and every person on the street has different needs, and they need to be assessed. There's no two alike, just like there are no two humans alike. And we keep trying to come up with cookie cutter solutions for everyone. Um, you know, the, you know be, be it the shelter system or our interim housing, we, we think one size fits all and one size doesn't. Um, you know, the, the thing that someone on the street needs to know is that someone cares and that they care about them in particular, that, that you remember me, that you're forming a relationship with me. I'm not just one of the homeless, um, because that's really insulting. And that's often what's done. Everyone is treated the same and, and herded up as if they're cattle. And they, therefore, they should all get into the truck and go wherever they're supposed to go. And it doesn't, people don't work that way. They just don't. Um, uh, but the, the biggest thing is, in my opinion, there needs to be um, some sort of safety net before people end up homeless. Um, we have so much housing insecurity in the city in this county, in the state, where people are, are, you know, we always say they're just one paycheck away from being homeless. Well, I think, I think it's less than that, um, you know, and, and they're just teetering on it. And even, even if, you know, someone or family is, is late on their rent and suddenly eviction proceedings uh, are, are started immediately, you know, within, it's ridiculous, within three days, you know, it, there's an unlawful retainer, they're uh, subject to eviction. If they come up with the money a week later, they don't care. They're still going to evict this family. <laughs> and in most cases, keep their deposit money, which then makes it almost impossible for them to get into another apartment. Even though they have the rent money, they no longer have deposit money. So there they are on the street. Um, it doesn't matter if they've lived there for, say, they've lived somewhere for 10 years. So for 10 years, that landlord hasn't had to redo the apartment. They haven't had to replace the carpet. They haven't had to repaint it. They haven't had to put it back on the market and lose that month or two months. Um, between renters that they typically lose during that time. Let's see, over 10 years, we're talking at least about 10 months, almost a year of rent that this family has saved them by not moving out of it, and let alone including the, 
the 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 expenses from not having to paint it or or recarpet each time. Um, and they're given three days, <laughs> regardless. They could have been there fifty years. They're given the same three days. Does that make any sense? Not to me. So let's, if you can put your policy hat on for a minute here. If if you were, I know you work now as an advocate for the homeless, and I want to talk about what that entails exactly. But say you were appointed to some position within within city government. They said you're you're the you're you're the homelessness czar or something like that. Where would you start? Like, what would be top of mind? Well, um, let's see. At first, I'd start with accountability. Um, whatever system is put in place, there needs to be some accountability. Um, there is currently no real way to know what's going on. Um, like I said, each and every um, congressional district or spa has completely different policies based on who's running the show. Um, there's no consistency across the board. Each and every agency does something different. You've got a wonderful organization, LASA, the Los Angeles Homelessness Services Authority, um, studying the problem, um, offering services, helping uh, sort out uh, federal grants and, and different monies. Um, but they have no they have no power. They have no teeth. They can only make recommendations to the city and the county. The county and the city tell it what to do. And, and that depends on what's going on at any given time. Right now, we're approaching an election. So what, what, what do we do? We, we do political grandstanding. You know, everyone's going to clean up and, and think about it. They're worried about voters and they're worried about the house only. We're going to clean up Venice Beach. No, 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 no. Instead of saying we're going to help the unhoused people who are living in Venice Beach, we're going to clean up the eyesore. Um, that's all it's about. Echo Park, the same thing happened. Um, the, yeah, we removed 200 people. But my question is, how many of those 200 people are still in the housing that they were supposedly put in? My guess would be very few. And what is that housing? But, but no one's that's... but no one's tracking that. No one's paying attention. No one cares that, or it's a different two hundred that's in the housing, and the other people have just been churned through the system and are back on the street. If you drive by Echo Park Lake, you'll notice that people are starting to encroach upon it again because yeah. the problem is not solved. Um, we're just shuffling it around. And I want to be really specific here. What is the housing that is offered? Like, is it apartments somewhere? Is it hotels? Are these is it a shelter? What is it? Here, here's, here, here is where we get into the interesting part. Housing. Well, is, are we talking shelters, interim housing, uh, bridge homes, congregate housing, non-congregate housing, permanent housing, permanent supported housing, rapid rehousing, reentry housing, mental health supportive housing, sober living, transitional housing, senior supportive housing. I can go on. <laughs> I can go on and on and on. And that's part of the problem, too. There are too many myriad of options there's and, and it all depends on on your luck of the draw um so i i i'd be hard pressed to tell you because it depends on what worker from what agency comes and in what part of town they're offering it in um we don't have any like i said there's no accountability there's no standards um there it's 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 a complete it's a complete mess i, I don't know how else to put it um and you know we need to we need to streamline it because there's no clear pathway out of homelessness. This has become like a Jenga game or something, you know, and it's, 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 it's not evident to the people who designed it. And it's definitely not evident to the people who are in the system trying to find housing, how to get out of it, how to get, how to obtain housing and get out of homelessness. Are there innovative 
proposals being put forth. I mean, I know there there are supportive housing uh, projects that sort of function like a like a like a campus almost. So there's there's an interim housing project you probably know about it in San, San Antonio of all places called Haven for Hope, which calls itself a transformational campus. It has wraparound services, medical care, so on. It has a courtyard which functions as a sort of outdoor shelter, emergency shelter. What do you think about something like that? Well, well, I'm I'm glad you asked. Um, I think that sometimes that can be useful. Um, these types of of setups will provide all the services one needs. However, you're creating a homeless ghetto, um, and whenever you create a ghetto of any type, you you have now taken people of a certain uh, situation, economic strata, socioeconomic being, and put them all together, and that is the model that they see, and they will always you will you will have a a very good functioning um, homelessness or homeless ghetto that will continue to operate that way. What I think works better is when people are integrated into the society. Um, those same services can be be provided wherever someone is. It doesn't have to be just through um, you know a campus that's set up because now you know uh, people tend to rise to the occasion and and do what those around them do. Um, and and it's I'm glad you mentioned San Antonio because when I was growing up, um, I remember there was a a uh, experimental project they did with with home ownership, where they actually had uh, one one of the uh, new housing uh, developments um, put aside 10% of the houses, and those were rented out um, to the city, which used them to put um, homeless families in. And what they found is because other people around them were getting up and going to work and cutting their lawns and and raising their kids, um, they did the same. And those families, many of them went on to buy those homes. Um, uh, you know, there's it, people behave the, the way those around them behave. You see, we, we learn by example, we live by example. So if you put a bunch of people together with, with low expectations, they're going to maintain those low expectations. This is, I'm really thinking about this, what you're describing. Is this something that could even take place now? Are you talking about something that was going on like in the 1970s, in the 1980s? This, this was in the 1980s. Yeah. Um, so but it doesn't it doesn't have to be single family homes. It can be apartments. It can be apartments, right. you know, in, in, in different complexes. But it doesn't have to be a single block or a single building of, of, of low income housing together, because then, then you you regret you create those dreaded, you know, government colored paint, you know, buildings, those green and orange god awful uh, buildings that we all know. Right. Um, and 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 what and, and all the trappings that go along with them. I'm wondering because I wonder if there is just a a lack of will or even a lack of imagination. You know, in the 1980s, income inequality was on its way, but it was nothing. It was not on its way. It was present, but not like what we have now. Is it just harder for people to imagine sharing their neighborhoods with uh, a population like that? Like, it's I I, I don't see this. I can imagine this well, kind of playing well, out me, in, in the 70s, but not like in Silver well, well, Lake me, in 2021. Well, and, and there's a good reason, because um, why, why must anyone know that they're a low-income family? Um, we, don't, we don't display on the front of all the other houses their income, do we? Oh, they make a million a year. They make 200000 a year. They make 50000 so, so, but But we flag it when they're low-income, <laughs> you know? 
if we didn't flag it, no one would know. And the family would rise to the standards of the neighborhood they're in. Well, how is it flagged? What do you mean by that? Um, everyone typically knows for whatever reason that, that it, trust me, if you live in an apartment building or somewhere, you know which apartment, you know, that, that's the Section 8 apartment. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I mean. And, and, and plain and simple. And it becomes forever labeled that. And whoever's there is always treated that way. And, and, and people, you know, you're, you're creating an expectation and, and they live up to it. But how do you get people who have spent enormous amounts of money on their homes, more than they can afford often, to get with that program? I mean, somebody, well, Los Angeles is incredibly expensive. And you can imagine a homeowner saying, wow, I, I stretched and I spent everything more than I have on this house. And God help me if I'm going to see the neighborhood go this direction. Well, okay. And, and there's the assumption right there. Um, who says that that one family is going to bring the values down? There are just as many people with a lot of money who bring the neighborhood down. It's not going to be every house. It's only going to be a few houses. We're talking, you know, in a, in a housing development, what are we talking? Maybe out of, out of 100 homes, we're talking five. <laughs> most, of the, most of the bringing down is done by those with the money because there's not enough of the other people to do so. But they get blamed for it all. And another way to overcome that is we need to come together. There shouldn't be such a, a sea of divide where, where you don't know, you know, we, people need to integrate, you know, so those people with money should know people who don't have money. You know, we need, we need to, uh, you know, mix the society up and stop just living by these terms. You know, the, LA is, is supposedly integrated. We're not really integrated. We have people from all different economic strata, but they all live separate. You know, it's not really a mixing. It's, it's, it's a bunch of lumpy, uh, you know, enclaves of those with and those without. And until those with know those without and know that they're regular people like anyone else and, and a, hard, you know, a lot of hard workers, a lot of people who are you know, the same, they celebrate birthdays, they celebrate marriages, they, they weep when, when people die, they, they have the same concerns. Can you explain why cities on the West Coast have become epicenters for homelessness? What's do you do you have like a big picture well, kind of grasp on that? I, 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 you know, that's that's um, that's a huge question, but I can give you know an, e an easy answer to it would be the weather. OK, and if you're living in the elements, you'd want to be where the elements are better. Um, I sure would. Um, you know, um, uh, I would not want to be living in Minot, North Dakota and, ho and be homeless. <laughs> I just wouldn't. <laughs> even even if. OK, but hang on. I mean, I wouldn't want to live there either, but like, what if you and were I, able I have, to I live cheaply there? I mean, and I, ha I have lived there, but so, okay. Oh, that my, wasn't just my, a random example. No, my father was there for us. So we lived in Minot, we lived in Plattsburgh, we lived in Guam, we lived all over the place. And I've been to 46 of the 50 states by car. Um, so I do know a little bit about what this country looks like. And, and if you're, and, and it's not so much, I, I don't think it's so much that people, you know, they, they talk about there's not that much migration. They, they try to attribute so much more to that than happens. People have been migrating to the West Coast um, since the beginning of time. Um, you know, uh, the country was founded on the East Coast and people have been moving, you know, from from East to West uh, since its founding and will continue to do so. <laughs> um, and, and it doesn't matter whether or not they're homeless or whether or not they're poor or they're rich. Um, these these states and and. And just as we attract, you know, a, a, a lot more people of higher income, we also attract people of lower income. Um, but I think a lot 
a lot of those people have become lower income, have, have fallen off the off the uh, you know from wherever they were. They they've been become housing insecure and become homeless while while out here. Well, but people, especially people more on the right, will say that because of lenient policies in cities well, like Seattle there's, and there's yeah. a problem right there. You're listening to people on the right. <laughs> well, you gotta listen to everybody. Just no, hear, but, hear but, me but, out but, here but, a second. But 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 seriously though, I I jest there, but um but if we're not going to be concerned with, with people, then then what are we what are we gonna be concerned with? We're human beings. It is about humanity. So I I don't care. At the end of the day, it's still about people. And and the policy should be about people, not about money. It should be about people. Well, I, I, you're not going to get an argument from me on that, but just I think because people are probably asking this question. So, for instance, 2014, California passed Prop 47, which it was called the Safe Neighborhood and Schools Act. So that would make you know things like um, theft of less than a thousand dollars or something, or drug possession. It would make them misdemeanors instead of felonies. And so there there are those who would say that. People will come to these cities because it's easier for them to be homeless there, not just because of the weather, than in some place like Memphis, Tennessee. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out as an example. Well, so, I, like, I, yeah, I seriously, to that. I, I seriously doubt that because um, it takes uh, it takes quite a lot of means to get from Memphis, Tennessee to California if one is homeless, and I think that's beyond most people's uh, ability. So I, I really doubt that. And, and if they did do so, more power to them because that's some quite, quite a lot of determination. Okay. I don't know how much a bus ticket costs, but I mean, but we do see, and again, I'm just, I, because I have you here, I, I, wanted, I want well, to take, I want you to explain this because like there are people who say like, well, there's all these white well, kids, well, here, you know, ran, ran away from home and now they're sitting on, on, you know, on the streets in Venice asking for money. And we're pretty sure they have families back in Buffalo. You know, what do you say well, to those would people who I, wonder that? I, I would. Uh, that's 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 a <laughs> that's a big question too. Um, I would say first of all, like once again, they had the means to get from from Buffalo. Um, you, and and if we use your example, we're talking rich white kids, not not people who were working families who lost their apartments in Los Angeles or anywhere nearby. Um, that, that's that's an issue of privilege that we have going on here that you're talking about versus. Um, and inequity, um, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I just think, the, uh, as you pointed out, there are all kinds of There's different people types in, of in people this who are, situation. Yes. Yes. yes, so there are the people yes. who we see who are visibly mentally ill or schizophrenic. And you'll find that that population of, of kids from Buffalo are not intense in Venice Beach. They're not intense in Echo Park. <laughs> um, they're not part of that community right. Of, of, right. of encampments. At all. That's true. All, that's, that's true. We st- very true. So we see them during the day. So where are they going see at them night? During the day. At night, they're staying on their couch surfing with somebody or staying in, in someone's aunt's house or something. They're somewhere else. They're on the street just trying to eke out a living uh, without doing anything during the daytime. But they're not truly homeless. Um, they've, they've got their foot in the door somewhere. Because when, when the sun goes down, they're not out there. But are they counted among the homeless, statistically? Um, that I would have to refer to uh, um, those who do the counts in Lhasa. I, I, I have no idea. Um, you know, that, and that's another, that's another thing that needs to be addressed is the way we do homelessness counts 
um, how, how they're used. Um, and, you know, I, I have some comments on that. You know, we, 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 due to COVID, we didn't do a, LASA didn't do a count this year. Um, however, I think it was more important that we probably did because um, it, that's when it was most critical and most crucial to figure out what resources are needed. What, you know, this is a once in a lifetime thing. It couldn't have been any worse to be homeless and be during a, during a pandemic. And that's when we chose not to try to take measure of what's going on in that community for that most vulnerable populations. And I just, that's ironic to me, but, uh, you know, that's what we did. And yeah. everyone was okay with that. Oh, but it's COVID. So we, you know, we can't risk the work. Well, there, there are plenty of ways to be safe. If we, have, if we figured out how to, to have healthcare workers in a hospital with people who are known to be positive, you know, and, and handle it, then we definitely could have, could have had people out there doing what they needed to do. Because actually when to do a pro- account, you don't even really, you don't interact with the people on a personal level anyway. Right. So I want to ask you a little bit about your relationship. You were with your husband during the entire time of your homelessness. Was there were there challenges that you faced? A because you had a partner at all. They're your package deal. They're two of you. But also you're in a gay relationship. How did that sort of play out? Oh, it 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 plays out in many many different ways. Uh, uh, yes, being gay. Um, creates another hurdle when one is on the street. Uh, you have to, well, anybody on the street has to earn the respect of those around them. Um, we kind of had to go the extra mile because people are on the lookout. They're always assuming you're, you know, uh, they're assuming the worst in, in their minds. Um, so just telling someone, you know, just saying, you know, hey, you, you know, good job of cleaning your area. Someone will think you're flirting with them. <laughs> and you're just saying, you just, you know, thank you for doing the good job cleaning your area. Um, so you really have to be careful about the things you say, the things you do. Um, but then at some point we realize, you know what, we just have to live and be who we are. And if they have a problem with it, they need to move. You know, we're, we're not, you know, we're, we're, we're not trying to change them. We're not trying to educate them. That's not my job, you know, and, and at this point in life, if they haven't figured it out, it's a little too late. Um, so, uh, we kind of, found our strength in just being who we are and being in our team. And if people found out that, you know, we, we didn't necessarily tell you, but if you asked, we would, um, you know, cause it was, it's just like, it's no one else's business. If you're with someone, it's, it's no, no one's business if I'm with someone, but if they didn't like it, then, then that's their problem. Um, you know, however, it, it did prove to provide a lot of other issues when it came to getting help because um, the city, all of the different programs that are offered out there are all geared around single single persons. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's no shelter. There's no, um, you know, interim housing. There's no bridge home. There's no permanent housing. None of these things are geared for a couple, which is really awful because um, as, as we know from uh, mental health professionals, people find strength in, in that social bond of, of being coupled or being having community of some sort. And, and that, and that is what helped help me keep my sanity through all of this. And help me make the progress and and get to the point where I am now, where where I've, I'm back on my feet, and and a lot of that strength came from having that partner to lean on, and yeah. that's the very thing that is frowned upon through our entire system. Um, you know, it, it, the only way it would would have worked is he would have been put in one place, way over somewhere else, and I would have been put in another place, and and that's just ridiculous. Well, uh, one of the things we hear a lot is that. Um, homeless youth at least tends to be there are 
disproportionate, there's a disproportionate representation of LGBT people for homeless youth. So I would imagine that there are agencies that deal specifically with LGBT population. Did you have any interaction with any group like that? Um, no, I, I didn't really, ha- we didn't really have that much interaction with any of those groups because as you said, they deal mostly with youth. Yeah. Um, I'm 54 years old. <laughs> so um, I've kind of, I'm long past that category. If you had had children, would that have made a difference? I mean, if a family, they would try to keep together, would they not? Um, here's what would happen to a family. Um, the children would be taken <laughs> and put in, by into by child, whom? Child, by by child, child protective, protective services. services. Services, correct. And then <laughs> the family would be forever trying to regain their children and get out of homelessness. As I have many friends who are on the street in that same situation where their children have been taken away and they're still on the street. And rather than the city trying to also help them get together and and reunify the family, um, they're kind of on their own and the kids are now in foster care. Right. So why did you stay in the community that you were in for so long? I mean, besides the fact that it was a community, it's since, you know, it was pretty small. Why didn't you, for example, go to what people outside of Los Angeles are shocked to hear that this is a real area called Skid Row, um, an area near downtown, enormous population of homeless people, I think the biggest in the country. And, you know, there are there are shelters there, there are food pantries, there are, you know, there, there are services, at least that's what we're told. And that's why this population has emerged. Uh, it's a tent city. Did you ever spend time there? Not a single day. No. And why would I ever want to go there? Um, and it's, it's the largest of homelessness ghettos on planet earth. Um, I would be one amongst tens of thousands um, is it really tens to, of thousands? I mean, what what's the number roughly? Just so people I, I get an know, idea. I don't know. I don't know the exact number, but it's at least ten thousand um, wow. in that area. And and um, it's, in my opinion, it's chaos and madness. Um, you hear people talk about, you know, oh, we don't have to worry because the police don't enforce rules and they don't do this. That's all the more reason why I don't want to be there. <laughs> you know, because I'm often the victim. I I don't want to be somewhere where there are no rules. I don't want to be somewhere where it's free to do whatever you want. I, that is not what I was looking for. I was looking to get out of homelessness, not to be, find better accommodations within it. So I read that you tried eight times to find housing. What does that mean? It means that um, the, the process for finding housing usually involves uh, an agency coming out, um, you being a, you know, talked to by an out outreach worker, or you going to an agency, which I did on, on several occasions, and uh, completing what they call a CES or a Coordinated Entry System uh, Survey, which then computes what they call a SPADAT, which is basically a number which uh, gives you a priority um, for, for housing. Um, after doing so, that, that creates a pecking order of where you are on that list of whatever housing they have available to receive it. Um, while that's going on, you have to become what they call document ready because invariably your ID, your your birth certificate, your social security card, and other things will have been thrown away by the city on one of their many sweeps. And that was the case, and, and, and that was true for us. And so you have to reacquire all those things, which take several months. Um, 
They also need to try to get a handle on any medical issues you have, any mental health issues you might have, um, any addiction issues you might have, um, any legal issues you might have. Um, and, and then hopefully at that point, at the end, there's actually housing available that you can transition into. Um, oftentimes, at the end of that long process, there is no housing available. Or the housing that was available at the beginning, there's now been a freeze on it. It's been shut down. Or, or some other uh, unexpected thing, like in one case, uh, my caseworker was arrested for Section 8 fraud. And all our cases were invalidated. Um, and we went back to the bottom of the list, and you start over again. But each time these promises get broken, you lose hope. You lose a little bit of your uh, will to, to move forward. Um, you feel stupid for even trying again and thinking you could do it again. Um, you feel used. You, um, you give up. And it takes a while. You, you have to heal from that. So you can't just, you don't just jump in and, and sign up again. And that's where people encounter, you know, they say, well, we came out and we asked them about housing and they said no, or they chose it. Well, you don't know what just happened to them. When, when people are service resistant, maybe they were just taken through the ringer and given those services. That makes anyone service resistant when you come up and, and, and approach them with, ser with services again. And they haven't healed yet from the last disaster. That was where their hopes were dashed. And because they'll sit there and sell you the whole dream. Oh, we, you know, we'll help you get out. We'll help you find a job. We'll help you get an apartment. Um, we'll get, take care of all your needs and this, that, and the other. And they keep stringing along. And then all of a sudden, you're just yesterday's news and they don't even come by to visit anymore. And, you know, suddenly that agency doesn't even, the, the, the outreach worker doesn't even know your name. They don't even come there. And, and it's an awful feeling of abandonment. And like I said, that's, that's what creates the people who are service resistant. I guess um, the sort of the, the elephant in the room here is why didn't you just get a job? You have an okay. education. Uh, okay. What, what prevented you? Yeah. What prevented you from just getting any, any kind of job? Okay. Well, let's, let's work on that one. So I, I apply for a job. I, I set up my what online through LinkedIn with, oh, I don't have an address. Oh, wait a minute. I have nowhere to use the internet. Oh, wait a minute. I have nowhere to use a computer. Um, I have my resume. Oh, I can't keep it clean because I have nowhere to keep it at all. And, oh, I have an interview, but I don't have any clothes to wear to the interview. Oh, I finally got some clothes to wear to the interview, but they're not clean. And oh, I don't have anywhere to, to iron them or to press them. My clothes are clean, but now I'm not clean on this day when we have the two things together and they lined up. And, and I fill out the application and the employer goes, well, you know, you don't have an address or, 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 you know, where can we send? We need to send you something by mail. There's nowhere to send it to. And, or, and, or in other cases where you get a job and they find out that you're, that you're homeless and they fire you because you're homeless. That's kind of how that one goes. Is that legal? I have no idea, but it's what happens. I would hope not, but but that's that was my experience. So, how did you finally get out of this? There's a a woman named Kimberly Hirschman came along. Tell us who she is and uh, what transpired finally. Kim Hirschman is someone that I attended Yale with, and um, I didn't really know her when I was there. I we interacted maybe four or five times. Um, I remember her because, uh, you know, at, at Yale, there's, there aren't that many African-Americans. Um, there are about 80 of us per, per, per class year. 
Um, she was one year ahead of me. Um, turns out she was in charge of the um, of the minority counselors and and trained my counselor. Um, also, I had interaction at the Af- African American Cultural Center where I was a member of the gospel choir, and actually she worked there in her work study job. And I think I actually got my membership card from her on one occasion. Um, so we had very minimal interaction, but she saw the she saw the CNN report, and her friends all started emailing her and telling Kim, "Do you know this person? You know, do you is there anything we can do for him? What you know, what what's going on? This this is one of our fellow uh, you know black yellow alums." And yeah, wait, let's let's back up a second. How did you end up on CNN? They just happened to come along where you were. Um, no. Um, while I was on the street, I had become, I guess, uh, quite vocal with with media. I had amassed uh, you know, quite a bit of a, 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 a press with with my commentary on on the situation I was in. Um, it, and President Trump had made an announcement uh, saying that, you know, uh, the homeless were desecrating as Hollywood and something needs to be done. They all need to be uh, grouped together and taken to an armory in, in Modesto or something of that nature. And a reporter at CNN, Dan Simon, um, really took great offense to that. And, you know, that, that, is, that the, is that the best solution you can come up with? Is just ship them away? Um, so he wanted to kind of show or, or give or, or expose that it's not who you think is on the street. You know, there's people from all walks of life and all situations. And so he put out some feelers and, and a woman who worked with a group called Koreatown for All um, kind of suggested uh, that, that they talk to me. And part of my story was the fact that there were also some very, uh, you know, I guess, unique people in the area. There was a man who was you know, who was in the Hall of Fame or, or Blues Hall of Fame for playing for harmonica. You know, Harmonica Joe, that was just, he was maybe seven blocks away on 7th and Berindo. Um, there were, you know, there were other people in the area who were down on their luck, so to speak, and not just what you would think were there. And that's how it started. And so we kind of talked about what landed me there. He kind of um, showed, my, you know, the, the conditions in which I lived and, 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 and carried on my day. And it was, to be a, a testament to, you know, the fact that people need to look around. It's, it's not who you think is necessarily homeless all the time. Um, regular people become homeless. Um, after he did the interview, um, he needed me to st- supply him with background photos and other things for the, uh, for, the, uh, for the release. And he left me his phone number, and I was supposed to contact him. And I remember I, I couldn't do that. I ended up destroying the number. I didn't get Why? in touch with him. Do you mean um, just I, psychologically? I felt mostly? such an overwhelming amount of guilt and shame. And I kept going, oh, my God, what have I done? On Monday, the story's going to break, and, and my family's going to know. All of my family, not just my immediate family, but my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, all those who had such great hope and great you know, uh, uh, esteem for me. Um, all my friends are going to know, um, all the people I went to college with, all the people I've ever worked with at different companies are, go- are going to know. And I just want to crawl up and disappear. I, I didn't know. I, I was, it was the worst feeling I've ever felt in my life. And just watching, waiting for the time to tick tock, tick tock, and for that day to arrive. Um, that morning came and it started with 
car horn. Some beep, 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 beep. And someone said, hey, Sean. And then I heard, whoop, whoop, police, police siren. Whoop, whoop. And, it's, you know, Sean, come out. Sean Pleasance, I need you out right now. Come out right now. And I'm freaking out. What the hell have I done? Oh, my God. The police are here at 7.05 in the morning. And, and it, I was just, I was frantic. And I, I come out, and it's a sergeant. Uh, and, and he goes, hey, there he is right there. That's Sean Pleasance. Um, I arrested that guy a couple of times for, for his tent up and for and and, and for, for a couple other things. And, and he goes, hey, we just saw you on CNN. We were down at the station house on, on Olympic at the transfer station and watching the news. And we saw you. Can we get your autograph? And so there I am signing autographs for these three police officers. And you know, he wanted one for his for his niece or something. And my heart is still pounding because I was thinking I was just in a hell of a lot of trouble. You know, I was freaking out. Um, and that's how the day started. Um, people started coming by, bringing things, um, bringing food, bringing someone, you know, people brought brand new tents. People brought uh, care packages, you know, like like uh, igloo coolers filled with sodas and, and fresh jelly food and, and uh, pairs of pants and shirts and, and you name it, uh, lanterns and, and flashlights and just anything you can imagine. Um, a, a, a young lady came over from from Yale. She was a said she was a freshman. She was on on uh, on break, and she came by and brought me coffees and do- coffee and donuts, and and said, "I don't know you. You don't know me. I'm, I'm currently. I just got. I'm a freshman, and and I saw the story, and I was so moved by it that I I just want to say hello and 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 bring you something." Um, and then Kim came by. Um, she came by with. I, I, I didn't at first that she was coming down the street cause she was with another, she was with an, another gentleman and, and they were kind of walking down the street kind of tepidly. And when she got closer, she stopped and just called my name again to Sean, you know, and then I recognized the face and I'm like, and I don't know how, but I, somehow I, she, she had on a yell hat and, and I remembered her name. I was like, Hey, I said, Kim. <laughs> and, uh, she came over with a big smile and, and, you know, gave me a hug. You know, I was, I was filthy. She was, she was squeaky clean. She didn't care. Um, and she sat down, sat down the sidewalk with me and, and just started to talk, you know, and, and, you know, told me, you know, it's, I, I can't believe, you know, uh, what you must be going through being in this situation for all this time and not having reached out or, or having one to reach out to for help. And, and, uh, you know, um, tell me, what, what, what do you need? And that was the, the different thing. She asked me, what did I need? Um, and I think I said something like everything. <laughs> she said, if you just want someone, if you just want food, I'll bring you food. If you just want clean clothes, I'll help you get clean clothes every week. If you, want it, if you need a tent, if you, if, if you want to get off the street, um, I can help you get off the street. Um, if you want addiction help, if you want um, mental help, do you need medical help? And I said, I need it all. And she said, well, let me see what I can do. And she said, I just had to do something. I saw the story and it just so touched me. And, and, you know, I'm thinking, she goes, I walk down these streets all the time and I never look down. She goes, on the way to my hairdresser and I never look down. And here's someone from my life from 30 something years ago in need. And I've been walking by them all this time, you know, uh, if, if not me, then who? And what did she do? 
What steps did she take? Um, the thing that she did was different is she took a personal interest and she established trust with me. You know, she got to know me again. She would come by a couple of times a week and say, hello, you know, maybe we sit and talk and eat um, and just discuss things and, and, and reminisce, you know, back to school and, um, and created this, this bond of trust because then I realized she wasn't going anywhere. Um, then we talked about my needs, what I needed, you know? Um, yes, I needed medical help. Um, I needed, you know, addiction help. I needed everything. And she started coming up with a plan. Um, she came up with a plan and, you know, and, and I remember the time it was a 21 day plan. And in 21 days I was, you know, off the street and on my way to, to, uh, you know, to being recovered. Um, we started with, uh, with, with rehab. I went to Tarzana treatment center and did their residential or well, detox first and then their residential program. Um, and once again, because you couples can't go in together at the same time, my husband had to wait, had to wait. Um, and was I he on the streets I, still? Was he waiting? Yes, we, he... we both. Well, no, he actually went to a, uh, he, he then went into a, uh, uh, well, I got to back up a little bit. Um, right when we came off the street, well, two things happened. Um, the medical part. So we both, you know, I, it turns out I had a uh, severe glaucoma and I only have one good eye and that eye had severe glaucoma. And, uh, so the doctor said, you know, if it, 30 more days or a month more, and I probably would have no vision in that eye. Um, and during that same time period, uh, we, we found out that, uh, he needed an, an order, a valve replacement. And, it, and once again, <laughs> the, the doctor said about 30 days and he wouldn't be with us. So it was kind of, you know, it was some wonderful timing that happened. Um, and- I, Kim, I can't believe I, that I, I would have been I would have been on the street if she didn't come along. Uh, I would have been on the street alone, blind, and you know just devastated. That's remarkable. Did she coordinate or go through any particular like agency, local agency? I'm oh, assuming she, she she picked up the phone and would and called and found you a detox phone, center. She, she went on the internet. We did every. She did everything. Um, she fought with agencies. She fought with because because she's just a lay person, so she's not allowed to do this. You know, she can't. She can't. You know, advocate for me. You know, is what they're trying to tell tell her that you know only someone from only an outreach worker can advocate right. for. Right. So does and, she and, go and find an outreach worker? I'm just like, what does somebody who wants to do what she did? She she do? found an outreach worker and still held held the uh, you know held the ball as far as getting everything done because um, she was the one leading the charge. But it it just killed us that she couldn't that she wasn't being allowed to lead the charge, even though she was the one who who was trying to get this done because I had been sitting there languishing all this time and the outreach workers hadn't done anything. So why all of a sudden is, is do I become their property when someone else tries to step in and help? You know, it, it was really quite ironic. Um, yeah, the way the system is, it, it really discourages people from trying to help. And you know, they were even threatening her with with different actions if if she helped. Um, but you know, we managed to work around, work through and, 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 and battle with the best of them. Um, it's, it's a shame that the system, like I said, discourages people from getting involved and, and trying to help someone because without her, none of this would have happened. Um, because what I'd experienced along the way is at each and every juncture, 
where there's a passing of the baton, where you go from one agency to another. Now it's concerning healthcare, or now it's concerning, you know, uh, getting you, uh, you know, from interim housing to permanent housing or something. Wherever there's a a an intersection, that ball gets dropped every time, you know. And she was there to make to pick up the ball every time and pass it to the other person, you know. So so I would end there, and there's a whole lot of of, of just bridges to nowhere. So it sounds like what you're saying is really this is a lack of coordination. I mean, is that the, absolutely I mean, obviously there are a million well, root causes we could say, but is well, that really well, at the crux of this? There's a lack of coordination, and there's too many things to coordinate. Um, it shouldn't be like a juggler juggling, you know, 20 balls at a time, but that's what it is. There's too many things that have to be kept in the air and there shouldn't be. And that's, in my opinion, the biggest problem. And it's, and like I said, once again, it's different from every single, from congressional district to the, to the spa, what they call them, the service provider areas. They're all of them have different set of balls in the air (laughs) and the professionals can't coordinate it, let alone the person who's homeless. Where are you now? Right now, I'm 600 days plus clean. Um, we were a year and a month uh, housed um, and living in Van Nuys, um, doing well. Um, this journey started on, you know, in, in September of 2019, um, and it's taken about two years to get, you know, this 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 stable footing um, because there's a lot of things that have to be rebuilt. You know, I, I had to overcome an addiction. I had to overcome I have so many medical issues because my medical issues were neglected for 10 years. And so, you know, trying to handle all of that and it's been difficult. Um, the mental issues, uh, you know, from depression, from, you know, there's, there's because, you know, there's, there's 10 years of my life that were wasted. And it's, it's really hard to do the counting in my mind and reconcile that. It just, it just, it is. But I must move on. I must keep going forward. And the only thing that that helps get me through it is hoping that I can do something to make a difference for others who are still going through that, to make their time shorter, to to make it easier, to find them a way to regain their their respect, their dignity and their hope, because that's what's missing on both sides. We've lost hope on both sides of this of this situation. Well, Sean, I really, really appreciate your your taking all this time. Um, it's incredibly illuminating and uh, incredibly moving. I guess my my last question, and you could answer it uh, as succinctly as you'd like, if you could say one thing to the governor of California or the mayor of Los Angeles, some sort of leader, official, people who are talking endlessly about how they're going to solve the homeless problem, what would you say to them? Um. I would tell them to keep an open mind um, about the, the, about their views of the homeless and the homelessness situation, to not lean towards quick knee-jerk reactions just to appease constituency, um, because we really do need to solve this problem. We don't need to just window dress for the political grandstanding that's taking place right now. And that's what's happening. All of the solutions being offered right now you might notice all are, are aimed at the homeowners, not the people who are unhoused. And, and that's a problem because this is a human problem. And that's what we, we need to look at. We need to look at how do we make these people whole again for their lives so they can be productive citizens again, so they can have hope, respect and dignity in their lives. Um, it's not just about 
putting the problem out of sight, out of mind. And unfortunately, that's what we seem to be doing. Well, Sean, thank you so much. Um, congratulations on on having gotten where you are. And I really, I really wish you the very best of luck going forward. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you. That was my interview with Sean Pleasance. Sean is an advocate for unhoused people in Los Angeles. A former banker and business owner, he lived on the street for 10 years and has been housed since late 2019. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. If you like this show, please consider leaving a rating or review, positive, of course, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support it financially, you can become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash theunspeakable. You'll find lots of perks there, including early access to the podcast. And if you subscribe at the $10 a month level or higher, $10 off your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. There are hats, mugs, stickers, magnets, a baby onesie for that deeply nuanced infant in your life. You can find all of it in the Nuance store on the show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Offer valid for a limited time. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW.